Good morning, and welcome to Simply Economics. It's Monday, February 26th. On today's show, business economists expect strong growth for 2024, and new home sales in the U.S. are up from last year. Plus, co-ops are driving economic development. This coverage and more, up next. I'm David, and you're listening to Simply Economics. We start off with an update from the National Association for Business Economics, which has revised its forecast for this year, predicting higher economic growth, double the job growth, and lower unemployment compared to its predictions at the end of last year. This optimistic outlook is based on the strength of consumer spending, business and residential investment, and government infrastructure spending. To discuss this in more detail, we have Abby, a correspondent for Simply Economics. Can you tell us more about this updated forecast? Certainly, David. The association's new outlook is indeed more optimistic. Mervyn Jebaraj, a University of Arkansas economist who chairs the survey panel, has noted that the use of the word recession is fading. In fact, three-quarters of the panelists now expect a soft landing for the economy, meaning a period of slower economic growth without a recession. That's quite a shift in sentiment. But what about the other side of the coin? Are there any concerns about this economic growth? Yes, there are. While the overall outlook is positive, there are concerns about the impact of inflation on lower-income individuals. Robert Frick, an economist at Navy Federal Credit Union, has noted that many lower-income people are suffering from inflation. He predicts a rise in defaults this year, particularly on high-interest credit cards and car loans. That's concerning. So, while the overall economic outlook is positive, it seems there are still some challenges ahead, particularly for lower-income individuals. That's correct, David. It's a reminder that while macroeconomic indicators can provide a broad overview of the economy, they don't necessarily reflect the experiences of all individuals. It's important to consider both the overall economic picture and the individual experiences within it. Thanks for your insights, Abby. Now, Shifting our focus to the U.S. economy, we're looking at the recent report on newly built home sales and how macroeconomic trends are impacting companies. Here to delve deeper into this is Michael, a correspondent for Simply Economics. Can you tell us more about the recent report on newly built home sales? Certainly, David. The Census Bureau reported that sales of newly built single-family homes saw a slight increase in January. New homes sold at an annual rate of 661,000, which is a 1.5% increase from December. However, this was below the 680,000 that forecasters expected. This rate was 1.8% higher than a year ago, but was 3.5% lower than the average in 2019, before the pandemic. What factors are contributing to these sales trends? Like the market for existing homes, sales of newly built houses have been affected by high mortgage rates which have put home purchases out of reach for many buyers. However, a downtick in mortgage rates earlier this winter could help improve the situation. The average rate offered for a 30-year mortgage hovered in the high 6% range in January after hitting 7.79% in late October. And how is the job market affecting these trends? The job market is actually playing a significant role. Despite the high mortgage rates, the strong job market has kept potential buyers in good financial shape. 
Ryan Sweet, chief U.S. economist at Oxford Economics, remains cautiously optimistic about the outlook for new home sales. He cites the recent decrease in the 30-year fixed mortgage rate, strong job growth, and non-problematic inventories for the new home market as reasons for this optimism. So what can we expect going forward? While it's hard to predict with certainty, the current trends suggest a cautiously optimistic outlook for new home sales. If mortgage rates continue to decrease and the job market remains strong, we could see an improvement in the situation. However, it's important to keep an eye on other macroeconomic factors that could impact this trend. That's certainly something to watch. Thanks for that, Michael. Now, shifting gears to the role of electric cooperatives in the U.S. economy. These cooperatives have been a vital part of economic development and quality of life in communities across the U.S. for nearly a century. From powering farms in the 1930s to providing broadband service today, they've had a significant impact on the nation's economy. Here to discuss this further is James, a correspondent for Simply Economics. Can you tell us more about the role of electric cooperatives in economic development? Certainly, David. Electric cooperatives have been instrumental in bringing modern living to rural America. In the early 1930s, nearly 90% of American farms lacked electricity. Thanks to cooperatives, by the early 1950s, more than 90% of America's farms had access to electricity. Today, electric cooperatives power more than 21.5 million businesses, homes, schools, and farms in 48 states. And how are these cooperatives contributing to the economy today? Today, electric cooperatives are delivering affordable, reliable broadband service, which the Federal Communications Commission deems a modern-day necessity. This service is creating new ways to live, learn, and earn in sparsely populated areas. Cooperatives are now the fastest-growing group of broadband providers, bringing new economic opportunities to rural communities. According to a recent study, Electric co-ops contributed $554 billion to U.S. gross domestic product between 2018 and 2022, averaging $111 billion annually. That's a significant contribution. What about job creation? Electric cooperatives have also been a major source of employment. Over the same five-year period, they generated an average of nearly 623,000 jobs annually, providing $51 billion in pay and benefits. To put that into perspective, FedEx, the nation's fifth-largest private employer, directly employs 547,000 workers worldwide. What about the impact of these cooperatives on local economies, particularly in areas of persistent poverty? Since electric cooperatives serve 92% of the nation's persistent poverty counties, their contribution to local economies is particularly critical. Between 2018 and 2022, Electric co-ops collectively returned $7 billion to their members, further benefiting the communities they serve. And how are these cooperatives investing in the nation's infrastructure? Between 2018 and 2022, electric cooperatives invested nearly $409 billion nationwide, including $75 billion on capital expenses, $304 billion in operational costs, and $24 billion toward maintenance activities. These investments are enhancing the reliability of the grid, speeding up energy innovation, and promoting the deployment of renewable energy. What does the future hold for electric cooperatives, particularly in terms of renewable energy? Electric cooperatives own more than 1.6 gigawatts of renewable capacity and have long-term power purchase agreements 
for another 9.8 gigawatts. Using federal funding from the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as two sustainability bonds totaling $800 million issued by CFC since 2020, electric cooperatives are well positioned to expand their efforts to meet tomorrow's energy needs responsibly. That's certainly something to watch. Thanks, James. Now shifting our focus to Brazil, a country that has seen its share of ups and downs in recent years. Economic reform is a pressing issue there, with changes in political power to shifts in economic freedom, making Brazil's journey a complex one. Here to delve deeper into this topic is our correspondent, Bella. Let's start with the evolution of freedom in Brazil. Can you shed some light on this? Certainly, David. The aggregate freedom index in Brazil has seen a hump-shaped evolution. From 1995 to 2013, the freedom score either increased or remained relatively stable, driven by improvements in two indicators of the economic freedom subindex. The first is women's economic freedom, which saw a significant increase in 2002. This coincided with a change in government and the Workers' Party taking office, which was committed to increasing women's economic freedom. The second positive trend began in 1996, a crucial year for the stabilization of the economy. Liberalizing reforms led to significant improvements on the trade freedom indicator. Interesting. And what about political freedom? How has that evolved over the years? Brazil's elections are efficient, transparent, and secure, which is well captured by the elections indicator. However, there has been a slight fall in this indicator since 2015, possibly due to political polarization. The political rights indicator also shows a decline in recent years, which could be attributed to segments of the population feeling disenfranchised due to high levels of polarization. It's important to note, though, that there has been no obvious objective fall in political rights or civil liberties. What about the legislative constraints on the executive? Has there been any change in that regard? Yes, legislative constraints on the executive have increased in recent years. This is reflected accurately in the indicator score. However, in Brazil's case, greater legislative power can be problematic. For instance, during President Rousseff's impeachment in 2016, a group of legislators gained a lot of power, which led to the Supreme Court intervening to shut down their secret budget. This group of legislators has continued to hold power, which may have increased the impression that political rights were deteriorating. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about the Prosperity Index. What's been happening there? The fall in Brazil's score in the last decade seems to be driven by the Minority Rights Indicator, which is proxied by religious freedom. Brazil has been experiencing fast growth in the percentage of its population identifying as evangelicals, and in particular, neo-Pentecostals. This has created friction and has been a source of tension. On the other hand, there's no question that income in Brazil stagnated in the last decade. But Brazil's economic performance has been mediocre for the last 50 years. An exception is the agricultural sector, which has experienced remarkable productivity growth. What about the future? What are the economic prospects for Brazil? Brazil faces a number of hurdles. High and inefficient taxes, inefficient regulations, difficulties regarding long-term financing, and a rigid labor market are just a few of the challenges. Security is another major concern, with drug trafficking and paramilitary groups posing significant threats. However, there are some positive signs. 
the proposed tax reform and the finance minister's commitment to tackling the fiscal deficit could greatly help the country. Brazil also has the cleanest energy mix of any country and could potentially deal effectively with the illegal deforestation in the Amazon. But to truly capitalize on these opportunities, Brazil needs to address the challenges it faces. That was Simply Economics reporter Bella, providing us with an in-depth analysis of Brazil's economic landscape. And with that, we wrap up our stories for today. Thanks for listening to Simply Economics. We'll see you back here tomorrow.